0: To Isaiah chapter 11 Isaiah chapter 11 we're making some progress through this great book it's been known as the gospel of the Old Testament because it is in the book of Isaiah that we have more references to the coming kingdom, to the Messiah to his work, to his sacrifice on the cross to his glorious reign than any other book in the Old Testament. This book is sort of All of the Old Testament kind of rolled into one and compacted down and really intense in its presentation of God's plan and purpose for this world. (coughs) Let me give you a little background here. Everybody longs for a perfect kingdom. I have a niece who just is uh, thrilled with all of the the Disney princesses. And you know, maybe when you were growing up, you liked to read the little stories about the prince and the princess and the, the kingdom, and maybe, you know, the, the princess was in distress and the prince comes and rescues her, and and uh, they all live happily ever after. I wonder where that theme ever came from. Do you wonder why that kind of image fills the hearts of people. And you find those kinds of stories in almost every culture around the world. Some variations here and there, but, but most cultures in our world have those kinds of, of future sort of marvelous kingdom ideas where everybody loves everybody, everybody gets around or uh, gets along, nothing bad happens. Where does that come from? Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 11 says that God has put eternity in our hearts. And I think all of those, we call them fairy stories or whatever, all of those kinds of stories are simply a reflection, some better, some not so good, but they are a reflection of a core truth that all of us long for a day when Almighty God will rule and reign and make everything right and we can all dwell in peace and safety forever. That's, I think, just sort of a residual evidence of God's original creation in us. Oh, it's been terribly marred by sin. And and we've seen that hope and that goal and that dream and that vision fade and be twisted and distorted and perverted because of our sinfulness. But that doesn't mean that God is not going to eventually establish His righteous kingdom on this earth and that He's not eventually going to make sure That everything is right. We get a glimpse of this. Just a little picture of it. In Isaiah. Chapter 10. 11 and 12. I want to remind us. As we look at this this morning. To go back to chapter 6. Verse 7 and 8. Or 6 and 7. I'm sorry. Where here we are introduced. To the Messiah. A child is born speaking of his humanity, a son is given, speaking of his deity, and the government shall rest upon his shoulders. All of the people of this world who have been entrusted with government authority and power have failed to a greater or lesser degree, haven't they? Every single one. There has been no perfect ruler in this world Even the best of kings, the best of emperors, the best of presidents, the best of leaders have been imperfect. None of them have measured up. But here is a description of one to whom the government can be entrusted and he will do it perfectly. Why? Because he is the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father... The prince of peace. And he is going to have a universal rule and reign. Now between the announcement of this and the fulfillment of it, things might look a little shaky at times. God sometimes, in fact quite frequently, announces he's going to do something. But then it's a while before it gets actually done in time and space because God's giving us opportunity to prepare. And when God gave this message to Isaiah, you remember, they were in a period of history where things were in transition. They themselves, in the southern kingdom and in the northern kingdom, were relatively prosperous, but on the horizon was a growing power called Assyria, And the nation of Syria and Israel, or the northern kingdom, was already seeing that and feeling the pressure. And they were pressuring the southern kingdom of Judah to join. Remember we talked about that last time? And God said he's going to bring the Assyrians and, and they're going to capture the northern kingdom. All the pressure that's being brought against Ahaz there in the south is going to be removed. But the Assyrians themselves are going to come and reach up to the neck. But they're not going to take Jerusalem. And that's happening. And in chapter 10, God reveals what He is going to do to Assyria. Look at it with me very quickly. Woe to those who uh, decree unrighteous decrees, who write misfortune which they prescribe to rob the needy of justice and to take what is right from the poor of my people that widows may be their prey, and that they may rob the fatherless. What will you do? He's writing to his own people, to his own leaders. What will you do in the day of punishment and in the desolation which will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help? God is going to bring judgment on his people for their behavior. But God, though he is using Assyria, is not going to give Assyria uh, a free hand. God intends for them to do so much and no more, and they're going to be held accountable. And look at verse 5 Woe to Assyria! The rod of my anger, okay, Assyria is God's instrument, and the staff in whose hand is my indignation, I will send him against an ungodly nation, that's God's own people, and against the people of my wrath. I will give him charge to seize the spoil and take the prey and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. God gave the Assyrian king, and in this case, um, here it was Tiglath-Pileser at the early part, later on Sennacherib, later on Esarhaddon but God gave the Assyrian monarch the, the authority to oppress God's own people because God was using the Assyrians as God's own rod of correction in the lives of his people. But what was the Assyrian perspective? Look with me at verse 7. Yet he does not mean so, nor does his heart think so, but it is in his heart to destroy and cut off not a few nations. For he says, are not my princes altogether kings? Is not Caldo like Carchemash, and Hamath like Arpad, and he goes on, the, the, he's, God is revealing the heart of the Assyrian monarchs. They have no clue that God is using them for God's purpose. They think that they are raising themselves up and they are conquering, and they are making a name for themselves, and they're going to treat one nation like any other nation, and we stomp down on this capital city, we're going to stomp down on the next one, and we're just going to keep going and conquer everything. You see, that's part of the deception of the sinful human heart. We don't think God's involved in this world. The wicked don't think God's involved in this world. Some of them don't even think that God exists or that if He does exist, that He even cares. The wicked have only in their mind to do their own thing. What a shock to them to maybe someday discover, oh, they weren't really doing their own thing. They were doing the thing that God had decreed for them to do. Can God use an evil event To accomplish his purpose? Yes, he can. Do you remember a fellow back in the Old Testament named Joseph? Joseph was the favored son of his father, Jacob, and um, Jacob gave him a nice, brightly colored robe and really set him off among all his brothers, and his brothers hated his guts. And when they had the opportunity They wanted first to kill him, but then Reuben, one of the brothers, one of the older brothers, said, no, let's not do that. Let's sell him to this group of Midianites coming through here, and and we'll we'll rid our hands of him, and we won't have blood on our hands. Of course, you know the story. Joseph got down into Egypt. He was uh, first in Potiphar's house, and then he was falsely accused, and then he ended up in prison and he interpreted a dream or two, and then he got forgotten, until finally one day, the baker said to the Pharaoh, oh my goodness, I forgot something. I met a guy that had the ability to interpret dreams. And Pharaoh brought him out, and he interpreted Pharaoh's dreams, and Pharaoh made him second in Egypt. Talk about a rags-to-riches story. Now Joseph goes on the same day from the pit in the dungeon to standing beside Pharaoh as the second ruler of that great Egyptian dynasty. Later on, the brothers come to to Joseph, and it's really an amazing story, and if you haven't read it in Genesis, I think you should. But eventually, Jacob dies, the brothers are all there before Joseph, and they're pleading, saying, you know, our dad said you you ought to forgive us. (laughs) And Joseph says this, you meant it for evil. And they did. But God meant it for good, to the saving of many people, as it is this day. God brought the Assyrians against his own people to be his rod of correction. The Assyrians meant it for evil. God meant it for correction. And God is going to deal with the Assyrians and bring them to judgment because they were totally ignorant of what God was doing in the world. Beloved, as you and I look around and we see things that are happening in our world, and we see things that are happening that trouble us. Don't let it trouble God is sovereign. And while he does not approve of evil ever, and it is that evil in this world that God is ultimately going to judge, evil is still not beyond and outside of God's control. He's not surprised by the rise and prosperity of wicked people. He's not surprised by that. That's not a threat to him. In fact, sometimes God even uses wicked people to accomplish God's purpose. And here we see it in the Assyrians. As you and I look around in our world, we see evil people. We see wickedness. Appearing to prosper. And sometimes that wickedness, that evil, even is oppressive to the truth. Even oppressive to those who are doing good. Do not despair. God has not forgotten his own. His purpose in bringing the Assyrians to the northern Kingdom was to bring judgment and to wake them up. And you know, the amazing thing is, in 2 Chronicles, uh, I don't remember the chapter off the top of my head, but it talks about a number of the Levites who lived in the northern kingdom, migrated south into Judah. And other godly people occasionally migrating south out of the northern kingdom into Judah so that they could obey and honor the Lord. The northern kingdom wasn't entirely lost. There were those who were Old Testament believers, Old Testament saints. They honored God, and, and they, they took action so that they could get to a place there in Judah, at Jerusalem, at the temple, and they could continue to honor God even though they saw the judgment of God. Was coming. Sometimes God uses wicked people to sort of wake up his own and make us see that we are not living in a world where all of our hopes are fixed here but we are living in the midst of a spiritual battle and we need to fix our hope elsewhere. Not in this world but in the world to come. So let's think about that world to come in, verse, in chapter 11. There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him the spirit of wisdom and understanding the spirit of counsel and might the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. This is a description of of the Messiah. Notice he's called a rod. Literally, the word is a sprout. It, when we think of a rod, we think of, you know, something that's long and dead and cut off and it's, it's, it's used for something, maybe for defense or whatever. The, the Hebrew word here is a sprout. It's a little growth. And It comes from the root of Jesse. Now, who in the world was Jesse? Well, Jesse was the father of David. There was not even a Davidic kingship in mind when Jesse became the father of David. You remember, David was the youngest son of the house, and when Samuel came and was going to anoint a new king, Jesse brought all of his boys. Except David, he was out tending sheep, brought all of his boys there before Samuel. The first one, Eliab, Samuel thought, oh man, this is got to be it. I mean, a handsome guy, tall, good looking, smart. Samuel's getting ready to get up and anoint him, and God says, sit down. This is Roger's paraphrase. <laughs> sit down is not him. You are looking on the outward appearance, but God's looking on the heart. So before there was even a a glimmer of a Davidic kingdom, there was Jesse, who was a godly man. And Isaiah is pointing back to that, because when there's not really any hope, when there's not really any expectation that a Davidic king will arise, someone in in the line of David, here comes this little sprout out of that stump that looked dead that in fact was a descendant of David and of course then of Jesse as well. And he would rise to rule and reign. This is the Messiah. He is a branch who shall grow up out of that root. In Isaiah chapter 4, verse 2, we we saw that name, the branch, being applied again to the Messiah. He is an outgrowth of God's promise. He is the fulfillment of that promise. And notice it says that the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. And it describes the spirit of wisdom and understanding. This Messiah will know because he knows. He will have wisdom. He will have supernatural wisdom and understanding. It comes from the Holy Spirit. He has wisdom and understanding. He's the spirit of counsel and might. He can form a plan and he can carry it out. How many times have people been thwarted in their ability to do something because they just haven't been able to come up with a plan that works? Or even if they've come up with a workable plan, they don't have the power to carry it out. Well, that those problems are not going to be faced by the Messiah. He has wisdom. He has power. He has authority. He has all the things necessary to fulfill His purpose. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. He knows The facts. He knows God because he is God. And he's able to do all that needs to be done. He does not lack any resource. And he knows the truth. This Messiah is unique. While he is a descendant of David, while he comes from the root of Jesse, he is more than that. He is that child who is born. Referring to his humanity, but he is also that son who is given, the son of the living God, Jesus Christ. John identifies him as the only begotten son. Jesus himself said, Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. It's a mystery. Please don't ask me to explain the Trinity. You know, we can take some, some stabs at it. We can try to explain. But we're talking about God, who is vastly different than anything we can compare Him to. Later on in Isaiah, He's going to ask that question. To whom shall you liken me? With whom shall you compare me? And the answer is, well, there's nothing. We're talking about a being who goes beyond our ability to comprehend. We're the creatures. He's the creator. And just as far as our creatureliness is from his existence, the I am, the self-existent one, as far as that, so is our ability to comprehend him. We're just not going to get it all. But that doesn't mean that we have to despair and not understand what he has revealed to us. He is supernatural. He is the Son of God. Notice verse 3. His delight is in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes nor decide by the hearing of his ears. You know, if you go to court these days, you are... Uh, called upon, maybe you've served in, in, in jury duty, uh, maybe you've been to court to testify or whatever, but uh, you, you have to say what you've seen, or say what you have heard, you have to give first hand testimony and the judge and the jury sit there and they listen to all this, and they see only the things that are presented to them and not always is that presentation of evidence a good presentation. Sometimes things get left out. You know, Usually there's uh, what's called a suppression hearing at the beginning where, where the, the counsel for the defense and, and the uh, uh, prosecution get together and they come to, before the judge and, and they present things and they have rulings and this evidence is admissible and this evidence isn't admissible and you can't talk about this part, he can talk about that part and so sometimes even in a court of law not everything gets put forth there. That will not be the case here. The Messiah does not have to rely upon the senses in order to make judgment. He doesn't have to rely on some attorney or some investigator presenting evidence because the Messiah has the ability to know and understand all things completely to the very core of the truth, and he doesn't need the testimony of anybody else in order to render judgment. He's never fooled. We know in the history of our, of our nation, in the history of the laws of our nation, that there have been those who are innocent who are declared guilty, and those who are absolutely guilty who are let go free. That's the problem of human wisdom. The Messiah, who will rule and reign, will never have that problem. Ever. And that ought to comfort us, and it ought to terrify us. Because you and I don't get away with anything. Just think about that. We like the bad guy to get caught, don't we? We like the bad guy to get what's coming to him. But oh my goodness, if we get what's coming to us. Because there's there's no extenuating circumstances. There's nothing that we can do or say that will justify in any way ourselves before God. We are all guilty before God. And unless God himself justifies us and forgives us through the blood of his son Jesus Christ, we have no hope. Thanks be to God that salvation is available. Thanks be to God that Jesus Christ Saw my sin and took my penalty upon himself, so that when I would believe upon him, I could be declared not guilty. I could be declared free, forgiven, and acceptable in the sight of my people. Chapter 11 goes on and says, With righteousness, verse 4, he judges the poor and decides with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins, and faithfulness the belt of his waist. Everything that he does is going to be in truth and righteousness and justice. When Jesus Christ comes to this earth to judge, he will not be fooled. He will judge righteously. Everything will be exposed for what it truly is. That is a quality, that's a characteristic of the millennial kingdom, of the king of kings and lord of lords. Perfect righteousness and justice. But isn't that what we want in in the stories? Don't we always want the bad guy to get, you know, his punishment And, and the prince and the princess can ride off into the sunset and live happily ever after, right? That's that's what our hearts long for. That's why we write those stories. Because that's imprinted into our very soul. And we long for it, but our sin has twisted it and distorted it. Notice what else is going to be characteristic of this millennial kingdom, this thousand year reign of Christ. Verse 6, the wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion and the fattening together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze; their young ones shall lie down together, and the ox shall eat straw, or the lion shall eat straw like the ox. Their nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now some commentators look at that and they say, oh, that's just a picture for, you know, the wolf is, is, is uh, unrighteous human government and all that. And they kind of make a, uh, an image out of that. I don't think that's the case at all. I think this is exactly what it says, that the wolf and the lamb are going to lay down together, and the lamb's not going to be inside the wolf. You know, there's going to be a tremendous change in the animal kingdom. You say, why do you come to that conclusion? Think about it with me. What was it in Genesis that God said to Adam and Eve after they were created, he gave them dominion over the earth? Didn't they? And everybody lived at peace with one another. Sin has not yet entered the world. This is Genesis chapter two. We're not in chapter three yet. God gives dominion to Adam and to Eve, and they're to rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and the beasts of the field, and they're to bring all of the earth into order. And the Garden of Eden is kind of the pattern, the prototype, the the blueprint. They're to to organize things and, and get it all taken care of. And Scripture says that they were both naked and they were not ashamed. And there's no hint that there was any animosity at all between the animal creation and the creation of human beings. Maybe you've seen paintings of that world of Eden And I I get it, they're the artist's idea, but you've got all the birds and all the animals and everything, and usually there's the man and the woman, uh, and, and, and everything is at peace. And it's quiet, and it's lovely. Why do we long for that in the stories? Because God has imprinted it in our hearts for the purpose of driving us to the truth. We can't provide it for ourselves, can we? Well, we've domesticated a lot of animals, and yet they're not fully domesticated. You know, there are times, Jasmine, our little dog at home is typically a wonderful little dog, but there are times when her doggish nature comes right back to the surface again. And, and I sometimes I call her, you beast. Because she is. <clears throat> you know? She's a beast. And she has a beast's nature. But God is going to transform that. Just as He did in Genesis 9. Why were all the animals on the ark not eating one another? Why did the lion not consume the lamb? Why did the bear not, you know, eat whatever was beside it in the next in the next pen over there because there was no animosity between humans and animals until after the flood. Genesis chapter 9 God says now you can eat meat and I'm going to put the fear of man into the heart of the animals and I'm going to hold the animals accountable. This is amazing for, for attacking the human. And God says, I'm going to hold humans responsible for attacking one another. You can read about it in Genesis chapter 9. And I think it was at that time that then these animals that, you know, can you picture Tyrannosaurus Rex munching a a, a bale of hay? Well, before Genesis chapter 9, that's exactly what they did. Our evolutionary model says, oh, these big, long, carnivorous kind of teeth, you know, these fangs that are great for tearing meat, that thats they've always done that. I don't think so. I don't think so. I think there was a time when the animals probably ate plants, all of them just like mankind ate plants, and it wasn't until after the flood. And it was part of what Paul calls in Romans, God's subjection of the world to futility. That God puts that enmity between man and animals. And he puts that carnivorous passion within the the beasts. and, And all of this takes place because of sin. God is subjecting the world to the frustrations and the futilities that sin brings about for a purpose so that there can be a contrast between the behavior of sinful human beings and the righteousness and holiness of Almighty God. So that there can be a motivation for sinful human beings who finally discover I can't live in a world like this to look up and cry out for salvation. God is doing all of these things but we are blind to them. We're blind to them because we bought into the world's belief system, and and we're not we're not pursuing our Savior like we should. So we become blind to these things. Verse ten. There shall be in that day a root of Jesse who shall stand as a banner to the peoples. For the Gentiles shall seek him not only will righteousness begin with the household of God and with God's chosen people, and not only will it extend into the animal kingdom and, and the relationships of the animals to one another and, and of the animals to us, but also God is going to extend this relationship not just to his chosen people, but to all the peoples of the earth. Here it is. In that day there shall be a root of Jesse who shall stand as a banner to the people For the Gentiles shall seek him. God's going to open salvation. Not just to the Jewish nation. But to everyone on the face of the earth. And you see it for example in Ruth. As she leaves her gods of Moab. And she follows Naomi. And she says your God will be my God. And your people will be my people. You go, I'll go. And where you die, that's where I'm going to die. And yet, the Moabites were cursed by God, weren't they, because of the way they treated the Jewish people when they came up out of Egypt. And yet, God extends mercy. You understand the heart of Almighty God? He has to judge sin. His holiness, His righteousness, His truth demands that sin be judged. And yet God in His mercy, which is not in conflict with His holiness. God is not schizophrenic. He's not not double-minded here. God is in perfect harmony with Himself and He is displaying all of the qualities of the Godhead so that you and I can see them and marvel at them. He is just and righteous and holy and and brings vengeance on his enemies and yet he is merciful and gracious and kind and patient. All of these things in perfect balance, in perfect tension with one another for his glory. And so God extends this Offer of mercy and grace and salvation even to the Gentiles. Verse 11, God is going to amazingly recover his own people. In that day it shall come to pass that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people who are left. From Assyria and Egypt and Pathros and Cush and Elam and Shinar, from Hamath and the islands of the sea. If you were standing in Jerusalem and were pointing to these locations, you just just went the whole way around. (laughs) You just went the whole way around the world. All the directions of the compass. God's going to bring his... Well, when's the first time that God brought his people to that land? (coughs) With the Exodus. When he brought them up out of Egypt... They weren't scattered all over the world then, but he brought them up out of Egypt, and he brought them into the land of promise, and he established them there. And he drove them out from there because they were disobedient to him, and they didn't believe him. And they turned their backs on him. But God's going, and once once again, in mercy, he's going to bring them back the second time. And it'll be a supernatural regathering have set up a banner for the nations and assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Also, he's going to make a change in the hearts of his own people in this way. The envy of Ephraim shall depart and the adversaries of Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not envy Judah. Judah shall not harass Ephraim. But they will, well I'll get to that in a minute. You remember the problem there in King David's day? Saul was killed, and the tribe of Benjamin and some of the northern tribes wanted to follow the Ishbosheth, the son of uh, Saul, and Judah wanted to follow David because David had been the one who had been leading them, and, and a seven-year-long civil war broke out. And finally, that thing got resolved, and, and eventually Israel, the northern part, made David their king, and, and for a while under David and then under Solomon, there was a united kingdom. But what happened after Solomon died? Rehoboam comes to the throne, his son, and he makes some rather stupid statements. They all come and they say, we want to be a kingdom. And he says, that's great. Uh, you think my dad was tough. You haven't seen anything yet. And the northern tribes said, ha, we're out of here. You take care of it yourself, Judah. We're going to go do our own thing. There was division in the land, and it's been that way ever since. There has always been jealousy and strife, even between the tribes of Israel. But in the millennial kingdom, when the Messiah comes to rule and reign, all of that is done. No more. So much so, look at verse 14. But they shall fly down upon the shoulder of the Philistines toward the west. Together they shall plunder the people of the east. They shall lay their hand on Edom and Moab, and the people of Ammon shall obey them. The Lord shall utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt. With his mighty wind he will shake his fist over the river. That's a reference to the river Euphrates. And strike it into seven streams and make men cross over dry shod. God's going to give a unified heart to his people, and then God is going to use his people as his instrument of judgment against all the nations who were arrayed against them. Now, it's a little hard to put all of the chronology together here. Some parts, the lion and the lamb and all those things, that, that kind of has an extended picture, doesn't it? It's not just an instant in time, but it's a condition that continues on for a period of time. And we know from other portions of Scripture that the millennium is a thousand years, particularly in Revelation chapter 20. But here at the beginning, flying down on the adversaries and deliverance and all, that seems to be happening at at a point in time and it's a short duration. So it's a little hard at times for us to to be exactly sure of the chronology because remember Isaiah as the prophet was standing on, on this mountain and he's looking to the future and all those events like mountain peaks out there, it's a little hard to say how far that one is from that one and is this bigger and and, and so we have that kind of compressed time when we look at prophecy but God is going to use his people To bring about his plan and purpose. To exercise vengeance on the enemies of God and of Israel. He's going to give his own people a new heart. And they're going to be unified together. And they're going to be in submission to God. And he's going to rule and reign through truth and righteousness. And he's going to judge. And he's going to open the door of salvation even to the Gentiles. And the kingdom is going to be of such a different nature than what we experience right now. And all of this to the glory of God. Look at chapter 12. In that day, you will say, O oh Lord, I will praise you. Though you were angry with me, your anger is turned away and you comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For Yahweh, which is a shortened form for Yahweh. Yahweh, the Lord, the everlasting the, the uh, I Am, is my strength and song. He also has become my salvation. Therefore, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And in that day you will say, praise the Lord, call upon His name, declare His deeds among the peoples, make mention that His name is exalted, Sing to the Lord, for He has done excellent things. This is known in all the earth. You get a picture here of praise welling up, beginning certainly in Jerusalem and among God's own people, but encompassing the earth because the whole earth is full of His glory. It wasn't the angels in the seraphim said in Isaiah chapter 6, holy, 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 holy. The Lord God Almighty, the whole earth is full of His glory. It's a picture of the millennium. It's a picture of that thousand-year period of time when Jesus Christ rules and reigns on the throne in Jerusalem over this world. And that millennial kingdom is the prelude, the, the little picture in advance what eternity is going to be like. Beloved, I think there are some important lessons for us here today, and I want to just make mention of them quickly. First of all, God keeps his promises. He keeps his promises. He promised that he would give the land to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, and to their descendants forever, and God's going to do that. Now, if we looked at that promise 200 years ago, we'd have said, oh, no, that's not going to happen because Israel was not a nation then, and they weren't in the land, and they didn't control any of the land, not even a little part of it. It was all under uh, Muslim control and British control, and they didn't have any say in it. The Jews were scattered all over the world. But since 1948, Israel has been a state recognized in the world. Now, it's just never happened that after 1,800 years of non-existence, the same body of people reconstituted themselves as a nation again. That's the hand of God at work. God keeps his promises. I mean, we don't see any Hittites now, do we? no Hittite nation, no Amorite nation. There's no Egyptian empire now. All of those things have passed into history. But the Jews have not. God's keeping his promise. You know, if he keeps those kinds of promises, he'll keep the promises that he makes to you and me as well. The promise of salvation. The promise that I'll never leave you or forsake you. The promise that we can trust in him no matter what comes our way. God is working according to his plan, and he's doing it today. God is not unaware of the world's circumstances, he knows that Israel is at war with her neighbors. He knows what's happening in Russia, he knows what's happening in China, he knows what's happening all through South America, and he knows what's happening in this nation. And I don't understand it all, I can't figure it all out, but God is at work in the world, moving this world in the direction that he has ordained it shall go in order to accomplish God's purpose. That includes the expression of evil and everything. Nothing is outside of God's control. And though He never approves of evil and He will bring evil to judgment, it never, ever takes Him by surprise. I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful for that. Because that means that I can build my life on a solid rock foundation. And if God says he's going to take care of me, he will. There is hope, even when all hope appears to be gone. Even in the blackest moments of our lives, God is still there. And beloved, we need to anticipate the Lord's return. Luke chapter 21, Jesus says it this way. There will be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars and on the earth, distress of nations with perplexity, the sea and the waves, that's often a picture of, of humanity and rebellion. The sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them from fear, and the expectation of those things which are coming on the earth. Boy, do we see that in our world? Are people afraid? Do they not know what's going to happen next? Are they just in turmoil? It says, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Oh, this isn't something going on just on the earth. This is something that is spiritual. This is something that is unseen. It's affecting the very powers of heaven. But don't worry. God's still on the throne in heaven. And nobody's pushing him off. Nobody is pushing him off. It goes on and says, now when you see these things begin to happen, When you see this stuff starting to take place, look up, lift up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. Beloved, yes, I am concerned about the things that I see in the world, but I am not concerned about their ultimate outcome. Here's what I've been praying lately. Maybe you can join me in this. I've I've been impressed that probably to pray that all these things will just go away and we can go back to normal is not the best prayer. The best prayer is, God, teach me how to live for your glory in the midst of these circumstances. In the midst of the world in which we are right now, Show me how to live with wisdom. Give me that spirit of wisdom and understanding, that spirit of counsel and might, that spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. Lord Jesus, give me of your spirit so that I know how to live for your glory in this world. We can't turn things back, beloved. Scripture makes it very clear. You know, evil men will grow worse and worse. We're, we're moving in a direction. We're not moving in a circle, okay? We're moving in a direction. So we need to know how to live in the times in which we live. And that's the joy of knowing Jesus Christ as your Savior. Because He gives you that wisdom. He gives you that strength. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we look forward that glorious kingdom of Jesus Christ and even Lord people authors and musicians and people who don't even know you have that sense of wanting something greater, something permanent, something true, something peaceful, something glorious, they long for that and it shows itself in art and it shows itself in music and it shows itself in drama and all these things Lord, help us not to just be satisfied with with the picture. Help us to know Jesus Christ in reality. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Messiah, the one who will rule and reign in the real millennial kingdom and who will bring real judgment to this earth and who has already brought real salvation. To all those who will turn to Him. Lord Jesus, I pray if anybody here this morning needs to know Jesus Christ as their Savior and to find in Him that forgiveness and that fulfilling of those longings of our heart, Lord, I pray that they will turn to You right now and cry out and say, Oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Because You will. That's why you came to this world. That's why you bled and died on the cross. That's why you rose from the grave. So that we can avoid salvation and receive eternal life. Or avoid judgment and receive eternal life, receive salvation. So Father, if somebody here needs to do that today, I pray that they will. And Lord, for those of us who know you, help us to live with our eyes fixed on you on eternity, on the Savior, not on this world. Give us wisdom to know how to live so that we point men to Jesus. We ask it in his precious name.